So this morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, a very familiar story that most of you could recite by memory if you've been a Christian very long. It's, it's the story of the visit of the Magi, the wise men. A couple of disclaimers. First of all, they were not kings. We sing We Three Kings. They weren't kings. They were scholars, eclectic, uh, wealthy people. Uh, there were not three of them. There may have been three of them, but there could have been more than three. As they, the wise men, plural. Uh, they came to see the Christ a full year to a year and a half after his birth. So that's the narrative of Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and following. Here the scripture. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where is the Christ to be born? They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet as for you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So, so to understand this, we have to go back to the Old Testament. You say, well, to, to the book of Numbers with a guy named Balaam. Because this, these men went based upon a prophecy we think that was given by Balaam from Numbers chapter 24. So we go back to the Old Testament, and there's a guy named Balaam. Balaam was a, a, a pagan prophet. He wasn't a follower of Jehovah. And Balaam was a man who would curse your enemies for you. So you dial 1-800-BALAAM, and you get him to show up and curse your enemies. He was a prophet of cursing for hire. And so Balaam is this guy who's been... Requested by the king of Moab to curse the children of Israel as they come into the promised land to take over the promised land. They, the king of, of Moab says, they're too numerous and too powerful for me, so I got to get rid of them supernaturally. So he calls them Balaam and he says, Balaam, curse them. And Balaam says, I can only say what the Lord tells me to say. And he sends another group of, of more uh, honorific and upscale people and says, Balaam, we want you to curse our enemies. So I, 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 I can't do that. I can only do what the Lord tells me to do. And, and so in the aftermath of that, uh, he says, I'll, I'll think about it. And the Lord says, well, Balaam, um, go that way, but say only what you want me to say. And we, that's when we have this very, uh, really humorous, but wild and crazy story about Balaam and his donkey. Uh, 
So, so Balaam is riding his donkey, going to see the king of Moab, and it says in, in Numbers chapter uh, 24 that, that the Lord's anger, verse 23, excuse me, the Lord's anger was kindled against uh, the people of Moab, and the angel of the Lord stood before the donkey with the sword drawn in his hand. And Balaam couldn't see the angel of the Lord with the drawn sword, so the donkey turned aside. And Balaam starts beating the donkey and getting upset with the donkey. And so he went down another road. And it says, and then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with the wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, he pressed against the wall and caught Balaam's foot against the wall, which is very uncomfortable. And so he struck her again. And then he went down another path. And the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either right or left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord with a drawn sword, she lay down under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with a staff. Third time he's beat the donkey. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. Remember Mr. Ed? This is kind of Mr. Ed type stuff, okay? Opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, I just stopped and said, it's amazing to me that Balaam would go, whoa, a talking donkey. You know, man, this is something. It just says, and Balaam started talking to the donkey, started having a dialogue with the donkey. If my donkey talked to me, I'd go, whoa, man, you're talking. What's going on here? You know, anyway. And, and Balaam said to the donkey, because you have made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, once again, am I not your donkey on which you've ridden all of your life to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And Balaam said, no. And he goes on. And the, the king of Moab takes Balaam to a, a, a bluff, and he says, they're all the children of Israel. Now curse them. He says, I can't. I can't. He says, then why have I hired you to come here? And to another place, he says, curse the children of Israel. He says, I, 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 I can't. I, I just can't. Instead, he gives a prophecy that we think is the background to the three wise, or excuse me, the wise men. It says this. This is Numbers 24, verse 17. I, I see him, but not now. I, I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break up all the sons of Sheath. On down to verse 19. And from one from Jacob shall exercise dominion. So, so what happened? Here's a prophecy. They're in a largely oral speaking culture where they very meticulously pass down story and legend and story and oracle. And, and so this is hundreds of years before the Babylonian captivity. And the, the children of Israel go to this part of the world called Iran, Persia, Iraq area. And they're there for 70 years. And all of these prophecies they sing about and talk about. And it's heard and it's understood. And some 600 years later, this is wild. This is wild. 600 years later, there is a, a star that appears. And, and these Persians, these, they're wealthy, they're scholarly, they're eclectically bright, including understanding solar systems. And they have the bandwidth to do things like travel a long distance and hire people to go with them. This star appears and, and they say, what is going on? And somebody says, you know, those, the, the Jews who were in Babylon talked about a prophecy about a star rising in the east. And, and a king, 
a king being born because of this supernatural, unexpected, unheard of phenomena. And so these wise men, this is, to me, this is wild. These wise men said, we got we to hunt this out. This is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And, and so they get together, get a large retinue of people together, and they're wealthy. They have the bandwidth, and they get porters and people that carried food, and, and, and they go 600 to 800 miles from where they're living to Jerusalem, the holy city. And it's estimated that they could go at most 20 miles a day, 600 to 800 miles. That's a 30 to 40 day journey. They were serious. And so they, they, they go on this trip and they get to Jerusalem with their, with their large retinue, with, with their incredible, I think all the colors involved. This is amazing. They get to Jerusalem and they say, hey man, We've come here. We've followed the star. What's going on? And what's amazing to me from the text, it appears to me that it's business as usual in Jerusalem. They see the star, but it's just business as usual. It's no big deal. And so they start going around the city, and they start saying, where is he who is to be born king of the Jews? Where, where, where is he? We, we have followed his star for 600, 800 miles. We're here. We're, we, we, we're filled with anticipation. And there was a, a king on the throne named Herod the Great. He was an Idumean, which means he was from the tribe of Edom, which means he was not a Jew, which means he was a pagan. He would probably worship multiple gods. So this, this guy named Herod the Great was a builder and an architect and a progressive thinker, and he was a wicked, nefarious, horrific man. He killed his three of his sons. He killed his mother-in-law. He killed his wife. He killed his brother. He killed anybody that ever contested his ability to lead. And he led from 37 to 4 BC in Judah and Israel under the Roman tutelage. He was the man. And so Herod the Great heard that these guys were going about saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? The Bible says this in Matthew 2. It says that verse 3, when Herod heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. That's an understatement. You know the old aphorism, when, when mom ain't happy, what? Ain't nobody happy, okay? Now, I don't know if that's true or not. In my house, mom is always happy, so I don't even know what that means, but that's beside the point. But, 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 but the, 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 a true aphorism in, in Jerusalem was this, if Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Because Herod is a mean dude. And so he calls together all the chief priests and the scribes, and they went to him with fear and trepidation and trembling, I'm sure. You didn't go to Herod, you know, with a nonchalant attitude because he was a bad dude. And so he asked these chief priests and these scribes, he says, you know, tell me, you wise men, you men steeped in the Jewish scriptures, where is the Christ to be born? And they answered him the drop of a hat. They do the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. They said, well... The prophecy, Herod the Great, is that in Bethlehem of Judea, for soul was written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And here it goes. Hmm. Bethlehem. Bethlehem's about seven, eight miles, ten miles south of Jerusalem. And so he calls the wise men back in, wily, nefarious, wicked Herod. And he says to them this, he says, he says, uh, Astor, I want you to find out where this Christ 
king is, and I'm, I'm going to send you on your way. Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him as well. And so they go, and we'll jump down to the last verse of this passage. But they were warned in a dream that Herod's a bad dude, that after worshiping the Christ child, they went back a different way. That's the story. Now, as we think about this story, I'm going to bring out some points about how the wise men, the Magi, worshipped. And what about us? Number one, the wise men, to use Herod's words, searched diligently. I mean, 600 miles through mostly desert. 800 miles through mostly desert. Great expense. Great time. Great interest. They searched diligently. Let me ask you this. What about you? There are people here today who are, have never come to faith in Christ. You're here with a friend. We're glad you're here. You're here to hear the children sing, which was beautiful. You're here for a number of reasons. The vast majority of us have professed faith in Christ. But I meet people frequently who say to me, they're non-believers, and they say, you know, I know religion and spirituality is important, but not right now. Eh, not right now. I'm, I'm, I'll wait till I get to be old or older. And the, the problem with that is that the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 6 that, that today is the day of your salvation. The Bible says don't harden your heart. There, there's something in the Scripture that I don't fully understand, but there comes a point where a person repeatedly says no, no, no to the wooing of God and the movement of the Holy Spirit, and their heart gets hardened. Don't let that happen. So if you're not a, a believer today and never have come to faith in Christ, I ask you to be like the wise men, to search diligently, to use Herod's phrase, to search diligently to see if this is the one who is indeed Messiah and King. C.S. Lewis wrote a book about his conversion. It's entitled Surprised by Joy. <clears throat> and C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite people, uh, is 31 years of age, 32 years of age. He's a professor at, at Malden, uh, professor of Renaissance literature. And, and Lewis has been befriended by a guy named Tolkien and has been continuously talked to about the reality of God. And so Lewis is moving from uh, atheism to theism, not belief in Christ. It'd be two more years after this when he became a full-blown believer in Jesus. But he moved from atheism to theism. Let me read his account of what he says happened. 32 years of age, professor of literature, has been an atheist for years. You must speak to me alone in that room at Malden, right night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. Hear that? I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come to me, and I gave in. And I admitted that God was God, and I knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, which is the divine humility, which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal in the book of Luke at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly admire that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal like me 
who is brought in kicking and struggling and resentful and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. Uh, that's, that's incredible. Lewis says, you know, I heard the steady approach of the footsteps of him who I did not want to meet. And, and, and when God claimed me, and I, I made the halfway statement to believing that there's a God, I was, I was dejected and I, my eyes were darting looking for a place to escape and run to. Now, now why? Why? Here, here's the answer. I think the answer is that when you live as an atheist or, or a secularist and you say, I call the shots, you call the shots. But whenever you stop and you say, there is a great God who made the heavens and the earth and he is a personal God and he has spoken, all of a sudden, you're not the center of the universe and you don't call the shots. And that's why Lewis, he said, he said you know, I, I didn't want to meet this God. I was perfectly happy to be in the center of the universe. The thing that says later in the book, this statement, which is a marvelous statement, but then I got to know Christ and saw his purposes for my life. And he says, I came to realize that the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men and his compulsion is my liberation. What a statement. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of man and his compulsion is, is, is my liberation. So, so I say to you, I, I, I say to you, um, if you're a non-believer, search diligently. Search diligently. Um, see, we like to make God in our own image, uh, the, the God of the Hallmark movies, uh, where everything is happy and everyone's happily ever after, uh, the God where everything is beautiful and I call the shots and I determine what God is like versus the God of the Bible who becomes flesh and blood in a very difficult world, who lives a perfect life and dies on the cross for our sins, and then rises victorious over death and ascends to heaven, and he rules history. We, 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 and if he rules history, then I have to bow to him. So, so the question I have is, is, what about the claims of Christ? What about the claims of Christ? This is driving me crazy. I can't see these people over here, so I'm going to do this. Hope I don't knock it over and set the church on fire, that'd be bad. Okay. I'm not any better looking than I was a while ago, but I can still see you, okay. So the, the claims of, what about the claims of Christ? So uh, let me quote C.S. Lewis one other time. To me, this, this is the most, one of the most incredible apologetic statements I've ever read, and it comes from a little book called Mere Christianity, and, and I read it when I was a young believer, and I still, I can't, I can't get over it. Because if you go to Bangkok, Thailand, and you talk to Thai people, and you say, well, what do you think about Jesus? They'll say, oh, he's a great teacher. Oh, he's a great teacher. Do you believe he was God? Well, God cannot be defined. Buddhism says God cannot be defined, so you really can't say he was God, but he was a good teacher. If you go to the Islamic world and you say, what do you think of Jesus? They'll say, he's a prophet born of a virgin. Now, he didn't die on the cross because God will not let one of his prophets die in such an ignoble fashion. That's the legend, but he was a prophet born of a virgin. If you go to India and you would ask, for example, Mahatma Gandhi, uh, what do you think of Jesus? He says, well, I believe the Sermon on the Mount. He said this repeatedly. The Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 to 7, a sermon Jesus preached, Gandhi said, is the most wonderful thing I have ever read. And if the whole world would live by that statement, then we would be in a land of utopia. The, the, the problem is, as Lewis says, you really can't say that. I, I, I mean, either he's Lord, liar, or lunatic. Let me just read this paragraph. He says, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying... The really foolish thing that people often say about Christ. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. 
A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says, hi, I am a poached egg. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must, not, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can follow at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about us being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. He said nobody who's a great human teacher is going to say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Speaking to Jewish people who saw that as incredible heresy. A great teacher's not going to say, you know, I'm going to die and go to heaven and make a place for you so you can join me when you die. Just a teacher, how can you say that? A great human teacher's not going to say, you tear down this temple and I will build it up in three days, talking about his bodily resurrection from the dead. It, it's just, he it, it said, Lewis says, you can't, you can't say that. So I would just say to those of us who have friends, uh, co-workers, neighbors, who are non-believers, that, that, that we should say, are you considering the claims of Christ. I mentioned Benjamin Franklin four weeks ago with a stark statement. On his deathbed, I received a letter from a man named Ezra Stiles, the president of Yale. And Ezra Stiles is asking about his spiritual condition. And, and Franklin makes some wonderful statements. And he says, regarding the divinity of Jesus, or if Jesus was the Son of God in the flesh, he says, I, I don't know about that. He says, I've got, I'm of a mixed mind. He says, but I'm dying, in a few weeks I will see him and I'll know the answer. And I'm going, wow, it's too late then. It's too late. So let me take a brief departure from the text and say I'm going to read something in the text that's not there, but just the search diligently theme for us as believers. Do you search diligently for Christ? Are you seeking to know more of him? I think of some of the favorite verses we have in the Bible. Uh, one is Jeremiah 29, a, a word of encouragement and promise given by the Jews during the Babylonian captivity that started in 587 uh, and went on for 70 years. But, but he says this, and you know this passage well, verse 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Then, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. And I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek for me with all of your heart. When you search diligently, when you continuously lay your life before me. Uh, and I ask myself, am I a diligent seeker after the Lord? Hebrews 11 says, without faith it's impossible to please him. For everyone who believes that God exists must believe that he is. And that he rewards those who seek him. Do you believe God rewards those who seek him with his presence and his power and his blessing and his joy? I, I, I do. Or, or Proverbs 3. We all know Proverbs 3. Well, many of us do. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Do you believe that God brings refreshment to your spirit as you 
don't trust yourself and you walk in reverence and you run to the Lord? I, I believe he does. So I, I step back and I say to, my, I say to myself, am I really searching, diligent for the, for the Lord? John Newton was a, was a well-known man. He was a slave trader and an adulterer, a, a horrific man, uh, came to know Christ, became an Anglican pastor, wrote the most famous hymn in Christendom called Amazing Grace. And late in his life, John Newton said something like this. I'm going to kind of twist it a little bit, but here's what he meant. He says, somebody said, how are you doing, Pastor? He says, I, by God's grace, I am not now what I once was, and by his grace, I will not be in the future what I am now. Explain that. By God's grace, I'm not what I once was. I'm not a blaspheming, cursing, adultering slave trader. And by His grace, I, am, I will not be in the future what I am now because the Holy Spirit is working in my life. And as we sang in a hymn a while ago, change from glory unto glory till in heaven we see His face. So, so, so what he's saying is that as you walk with the Lord and you commit your way to Him, He changes you by His Holy Spirit. And one thing I ask myself as I'm getting older is, 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 am I being changed by the Holy Spirit? I was talking to somebody the other day and I said, you know, it, to me, you hear about old people getting set in their ways, and that happens. You know, we, we like routine. I like routine. Uh, but, but, but to me, if you are a, a seriously reading the Bible, and the Bible is a mirror that reflects your condition and makes you run to Jesus, you should never be set in your ways. I should be being changed as I read the Bible. And I, so I ask myself, am I somebody who searches diligently? Number two, the, the wise men rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They said, this is, they said, this is the holy child. This is a prophet. This is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Wow. This is someone who was announced with a supernatural star that appeared in the heavens, and we followed this star for six, seven, eight hundred miles. Wow. Now, let me, listen to me. They had no idea who Jesus was. They said he's a holy man. He's been prophesied. They had no idea that this is the sin bearer, that this baby spoke the world into being, that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system, that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that, that he is God in the flesh, that he is the ultimate final word from the God who has no beginning and who has no end. They were clueless. And yet they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. You see, this was not a once-in-a-lifetime event. This was once-in-eternity event. And I think if, if they had any clue, how much more would they be filled with exceedingly great joy? This is the one who would bear my sins in his body on the cross. He's the Lamb of God of Leviticus 19, the Old Testament, who takes away the sin of the world. Boom! Wow! And so I said, they, they had exceeding great joy. What about me? Let's think about the Nicene Code, which was put together in 325 and then formalized in 381 in Constantinople. And you got your bulletin, but let me just read the part. 
that talks about Christ. It says, and we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will never end. They had no clue about that. And so I say, what about me? Self, are you filled with exceeding great joy over the goodness of Christ? I was reading Spurgeon this week, morning and evening. This is what he says on the 8th. Charles Spurgeon, the British preacher, the best devotional I know, morning and evening. And he says, this, why are there so many doubts and so much misery and mourning among Christians? He says, it is because so many believers defile their garments with sin and error and doctrine, and hence they lose the joy of their salvation and the comfortable fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I thought, you know, God, don't let me do that. Let me be quick to confess my sin. And there's, I, there's sin I need to confess. Let me, let, let me deal with this. And, and let me have exceeding great joy because I see the reality of Christ. Now, I, I, listen to me. I know there are people here today going through depression. And it's horrible. I know there are people here that some days the birds are singing and it's 75 degrees and it's 15% humidity and the sky is blue and the flowers are, are, are blooming. You smell honeysuckle in the air and it is good. I know that. I know there are some days for many of us when it is 95 degrees and it's 95% humidity and it's overcast and, and, and the lightning is licking at your feet and it's hard. I know that. I, I'm not some Pollyannish guy up here. I know it hurts. I know we live in a fallen world, but let me say this. I believe that from the scripture that even in the midst of difficulties, and we have difficulties, we have a rock and a refuge named Jesus. And even in the midst of hard times, we can say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the resurrection of the body. I believe in the life everlasting. I believe in that the Holy Spirit teaches me to cry out, Abba, Father. And, and so I, I just ask myself, self, are you rejoicing with exceeding great joy because you know who Jesus really is? These wise men worship with exceeding great joy. They had no clue. Clueless. One of my favorite songs, and I forgot to bring the words up. It's kind of new. Mary, did you know? It's a, it's a hauntingly beautiful song. And, and part of it says, goes like this, Mary, did you know that the child you're holding at your breast made the heavens and the earth? Did you know that the child that you're holding is going to be the sacrifice for sin? I go, wow. Behold the glory of Jesus. The third thing about these wise men, they fell down and worshiped. Once again, they had no clue. This is a great prophet, a holy man, supernaturally foretold. They fell down and worship. And when you worship and you, you, you give something your, your full attention, you listen. And I was thinking that if I worship, do I really listen to the living God as I read the Bible? 
As I see the glory and grandeur of who Christ really is, do I listen? I'm reading, I, I love George Washington. George Washington is one of my heroes. And uh, George Washington, I'm reading a book now by a guy named Thomas Fleming, a good historian, a good writer. It's about George Washington at Valley Forge. Now, Valley Forge happened in the, the winter of 1777 to 1778. Uh, George Washington goes, it's about 30 miles outside of Philadelphia. He, he winters there with his 14,000 troops or so. They're hanging on, barely hanging on in this war. And they, they build these log cabins that they have, literally, they have no food. Many of the men are barefoot. It's amazing. And George Washington holds them together with his integrity and his character. He really did. 30 miles away is Philadelphia. Philadelphia is the third largest city in the British Empire at that time, behind London and Dublin. It's a city of 30,000 people, 40,000 people. And so the British are bivouacked there in homes with lots of food, being entertained by the women of Philadelphia. Uh, so the stark comparison, it could not be more outlandish. And so George Washington is there in Valley Forge uh, fighting enemies in Congress who said he's doing a terrible job. And, and so, so I'm reading this book. George Washington, by the way, was 6'3", almost, when the average American man was 5'7". So he was a big dude, and he was a man. He, he was a man. He's 44, 45. And so I'm, I'm reading this book by Thomas Fleming, and I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to speed read it because I want to go through it. And so I'm, I'm reading it very quickly until I get to the indented part of the page where there's an entry from George Washington's journal or a letter that George wrote to Martha who came in February to share the, the deprivations of the men. She brought some women. They made blankets. It's, it's an amazing story. But here, here's, by the way, 2,500 men died because of starvation and disease of an, an army of 14,000. Boom, gone. Anyway, so I'm reading this book and I get to the indented part where there's a journal entry or a letter from George Washington and I stop and I read it out loud. Which by the way, 100 years ago, that's the way everyone read. They read moving their lips because they wanted to really get, just, that's an aside, it has nothing to do with the story. But, but I, so I, I stop and I read the letters or the journal entries of George Washington because I want to know what Washington thought. Now, Thomas Fleming is a good writer, and I, I want to know what he, but I really want to know what George Washington thought, because he's the man. And there's lots of things to read. There's lots of journals to read. There's lots of information to gather. But, but if I, when I come to the Bible, I'm going to read it slowly and with attention, because I want to know what the living God says. So I, I look at me, what about me? These wise men fell down and worshiped. They had no clue. What about my worship? What about my attention? Fourthly, they gave they give gifts. Gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They gave gifts to the Christ child. Because when you're moved by that which you perceive to be great, you've got to do something. You've got to do something. So years ago, 25 years ago, so I went to Los Angeles to a pastor's conference at a place called Grace Community Church. John MacArthur's pastor. And the session started at 8 o'clock, so I got there early to get a good seat. Only about 250 people there in a small chapel. And I, I go in there, and there's a guy sitting on, this guy sitting on the stage. And I know a little bit about music. But that, that's Christopher Parkinen, one of the most famous classical guitarists in the world, especially at that time. And I'm sitting there going, 
I, th- I think that's Christopher Parkinson. This is unbelievable. He's warming up. And so um, right before we get started with our session, one of the pastors says, you know, we've, Christopher Parkinson is a member of our church. And he's agreed to give us a mini concert of 20 minutes just to kind of get our hearts still before the Lord. And he, he, he played, and it was wonderful. He, he, he may be a little tired because he, he took the red eye in last night from London. His last gig was before Queen Elizabeth and her family and cabinet. So Queen Elizabeth to a bunch of pastors, same thing, you know, same deal, you know. And he played, and it was, it was incredible. It was incredible. The next day I'm there, I got to say, man, this may, this may happen again. So I go in there early the next day and I get a good seat. And there's this um, fairly small African-American guy that gets up and I go, Who's, I didn't know who he was. And he starts singing and he's a, um, he sings opera. And he laid it out. I mean, you're going, oh my gosh. And he sang two or three songs, and we jumped to our feet and started clapping. And he, and he started backing up like this, doing, like, don't, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And John MacArthur came up and said, said don't be embarrassed. He says, when you're emotionally moved, you've got to respond. I thought, when you're emotionally, you've you got to respond. They're doing this because, wow. And so I, I look at this and I go, these wise men gave gifts because they had to respond. And of course, the greatest gift we give is our lives and our worship. But but let me just branch out and take three minutes and talk to you about how to celebrate Christmas. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but three things. How do we respond to the Christ event? Number one, observe Advent. Two candles this week. Second week of Advent, three and four, and then the Christ candle, the middle candle on Christmas, uh, Christmas Eve for us. And um, you just read the Bible, and you get your family together, and you pray together. It doesn't have to be fancy. You just, and you say, Lord, by your strength and glory, bless this family, bless this marriage, bless this parenting, or bless me and in, in, in my, 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 my friends and our singleness, or whatever. But you, you observe Advent. You just call down the blessings of God in your life. You say, this, this season is really about the coming of Jesus. It's just simple. But you can get an Advent book. You can get, you just Google Advent. It gives the readings. And, but it's, I think it's just such a simple thing to do. The second thing is uh, give to the world Christmas offering called Lottie Moon. Lottie Moon, for those of you that aren't aware, Lottie Moon was a Southern Baptist missionary from Virginia. The story goes that she was four foot, four feet and three inches tall or four inches tall. She was very, very small. She goes to uh, China. It's an incredible story. Sometimes she preach on the life of Lottie Moon uh, to take the gospel out. She's there for decades and she's on her way home and she dies in Kobe, Japan. And she's buried now in Virginia, her home state. But in the 1880s, people were so moved by her life, they started something called the Lottie Moon World Christmas Offering. So that, that, that's, why, that's where we get Lottie Moon. Uh, it supports 5,000 Southern Baptist missionaries. So, so what I'm saying to you today is that every worshiper here at this church would give to the World Offering for, for, to take the gospel out. To take the gospel places like Bangkok, Bangkok, Thailand. To take the places, the gospel out where people have never heard. To, to go to unreached people groups. And every person here, every person participates. And some of us can give thousands of dollars. 
And let's, let's, just, let's just say this. The, the, the gift giving among us can get really out of hand. I, I, my love language is not gifts. Even though if you want to give me a gift, please, I'll, I'll be glad to receive it, you know. That's not my deal. People say, what do you, what can I, what do you want, my family? What do you want? I, I, don't, I don't need anything. So I'm not a gift maven, that type of thing. Um, but but it's, the incredible excess is at hand. So you sit down with your family and you say, okay, where can we cut back and where can we do? Like for our budget, we're under budget right now, so continue to give to our budget. But, but this is over and above and beyond your tithe. And so what can we do as a family, as an individual, to support world missions to the end of the earth because the, this season is really about Jesus and he's good news of great joy for all people. So give, folks. Just give. Give. Hmm. It's, it's such a blessing. Such a blessing. The third thing is this. Pray about that family member, coworker, neighbor, or friend who's unchurched. Um, as far as you can tell, they have no concern for the things of Christ. And speak the word of the gospel to them. You give them a book. Uh, but, but speak Christ to them. A track. Let them know you're praying for them. Uh, see, all of us, some, some of you are going to go home to families and you don't want to go home to your family. Truth is, your family's difficult. And I've had people say to me, man, I don't, I don't want to go home to my family. I said, then you should go home. You should go home. Because you're the light. And you're shining in darkness. Go home and love them in the name of Jesus. Go home and listen to them and, and, and be patient. But we have neighbors and coworkers. Somebody asked me after the early services, do you have any coworkers who are non-believers? I said, well, the youth pastor. I'm in Martin about him lately. No. <laughs> Just kidding. You know, uh, but, but, but you, somebody you can speak. See, this is a season when people are thinking. We should seize the opportunity. But let us live for the Lord. Uh, this story humbles me to the dirt. These wise men, clueless. They knew 0.1% of what we know. I say, what about me? Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the day that you've given us. Thank you for the Lord's day. Thanks for, thank you for the joy of hearing children sing and being with friends and being encouraged just by an embrace, being encouraged just by seeing people who are in transition. I just saw, saw couples that are getting married in two weeks. Saw a dear brother who buried his mom last week. Uh, just seeing families who are walking through difficulties, but yet they're still trusting you, that builds my heart. So I thank you for your mercy and your goodness. And, and Lord, I pray that we would be uh, like the wise men in our diligent search and in our exceedingly great joy in our worship and our giving gifts to this Christ child. And they did this with limited, limited, limited knowledge. How much more? Should my celebration and my worship be filled with joy and anticipation? Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.